Hello and welcome to the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Sarah Brown and I'm joined by Chris Collins. We both work here at Garden Organic. We're here to give you advice and tips on organic gardening. I'm hoping you're enjoying those first lovely days of spring. It's a time of new growth and delicious anticipation of growing things to come. Chris and I are celebrating the spring sunshine and we discuss all those exciting tasks ahead. I guess, like us, you can't wait to get started. Then we're joined by our guest, who this month is Dr Ian Bedford, known to many as Mr Bug. Chris and he discuss just how important insects are in the garden and how they're under threat. Since the 70s, they reckon that about half the uh, insect numbers around the world have been lost and it's continuing to decline. And there's about 400,000 species that are heading towards extinction at the moment. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. That's a real wake-up call. I urge you to listen as Ian tells us how gardeners can stop this frightening decline. But first, a quick reminder that this podcast is supported by our brilliant sponsors, the Organic Gardening Catalogue. They're proud to offer a complete range of organic gardening products from seeds and plants to equipment. This month, why not treat yourself to their handy micromesh tunnels, for instance? You can use them now to protect against frost and later to keep the pests off your brassicas and carrots. Shop online at organiccatalogue.com And if you're a member of Garden Organic, you'll get 10% off. Now, sit back and listen as I'm off to the potting shed to join Chris. Good morning, Sarah. How are you? Morning, Chris. I'm very well, thank you. Very well indeed. And I hope you are too. In fact, what are you doing today, Chris? What am I doing? Well, you know what? I've got a few spare hours, which is good. And I think I'm going to do that marvellous job of go down and spend a little bit of compost about on my allotment. I haven't got a great deal of it. Because it's quite, you know, but I think people think compost is an abundant thing, but you, you know, it really is quite precious. So I've got a few ideas for it. So that will be my plan today. And the other thing I think I'll do is I, you know, I, in my, I have some areas that are heavily um, covered in weeds. I always struggle with, and I put my pecs down so I can grow my courgettes through that kind of thing. Well, my I don't. Pecs is ever, that textile fabric? Yeah, that's right. The permeable membrane um, sort of cover. I pin it down with ten pegs, but I don't believe it's a good idea to leave it season after season after season. So I rotate it. I move it. So I will be using one area which hasn't obviously hasn't had the light for two seasons. I'll be using the compost on that. I'll retain some, which, which I won't use today. I will keep that for my mulching of my broad beans and my courgettes and my tenders. That's what I'll do, go around yeah. the base of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. I had an idea, actually, Chris, about your weeds, and it's particularly horsetail, isn't it, that you, you're, you're stuck with. And I read somewhere that it's a really very good source of silica. So yes. if you've still got some there, pull it up as much as you can, soak it in water for three, four weeks or whatever. It might be a bit smelly by the time you've finished with it, but you've got a really, really good plant tonic as a result. Yes, it, I, I have. it's very good, actually. It's mainly good for human beings as well as in a tea. But I, I drank some and, uh, and I know why humans don't drink it. It tastes like <laughs> disgusting. But I do know people do use it in fertiliser teas for plants. And um, so I'll give it a go. I quite like it when you can use weeds, you know, especially pernicious yeah. ones, find weed and, and horsetail or whatever, when actually you can begin to think of them to your advantage rather than, you know. Than being an enemy. I think that um, it's important that, you know, well, one of the things about being an organic gardener and in nature generally is you try not to waste or you should not waste anything. That's that's the idea, isn't it? Nothing is should be just discarded because it's in your way. You need to think of the practicalities of how you can use it. So it's yeah, a good point. Exactly. 
So there you are spreading compost, and I'm guessing your allotment's looking pretty good. It's a coiled spring just waiting to go. I have got my, there is stuff in there. I've got onions in, garlic, shallot, early potatoes, and there's stuff in there already. And that is, it's just, it looks beautiful. It is just primed. It really is. I'm quite excited about it all. As you know, I do get rather excited about these things. Yeah, no, I'm not surprised. And April is the month, I think, when we all get excited because the, there's warmth in the air and the birds are singing and the buds are bursting and it makes you just think, oh yeah, i got to get out. I've got to get gardening. Well, I went out had a walk around North London, um, quite a big walk a couple of days ago, and all the magnolias are in full go. It's this Berries are flowering, the forsythias, everything's just bursting, you know, and all the bulbs, obviously. As my balcony, which I put all these organic bulbs in in the autumn, so I was quite um, excited to see how they'll do. And they look amazing. The balconies, all are, it is a really uplifting time, particularly this year after, obviously, we've had a really strange and hard year in many ways. So it kind of maybe it means a little bit more to us this time. I agree. But Chris, as you know, the poet said April is the cruelest month. And <laughs> yeah. I think that's a good point because April, you can see real extremes of weather. So we get these lovely warm, sunny days. First time you can feel the sun on your back and you're thinking, oh, yes, this is good. But then within a turn of a sixpence, you can get the coldest, yeah. frostiest night, or you can get drought. We, are, we very often have very dry Aprils now, or you can get snow. So it is yeah. the most extreme. And as a gardener, you've always got your eye on the weather forecast, haven't you? important thing to remember is you've still got one foot in winter in April. Mm-hmm. You know, you really have. You're, so you're one foot in spring, you're one foot in the growing season, you're one foot in the winter. And, and it is the UK and the weather does change here. So you just keep an eye on things. Like, you know, maybe you might need to protect stuff if it looks like there's going to be a heavy frost. Or maybe if you're seeing sowing seed, think about timing that. Always, you know, a gardener sniffs the air, doesn't he? So you, you, you've got to feel, feel for what's going on. And when you know that frost is happening, I mean, obviously you should try and cover these tender new growth. Sometimes something as simple as a cardboard box would do it overnight. Or if you can get hold of it, straw, wrap it around the plant or fleece. There's horticultural fleece you can buy. All these things, even if it's just for that night. Yeah. And also use of cloches, cold frames, that kind of thing. You know that if you've got something small and you're worried about it. Just cover it over, make sure it will survive the, uh, the any kind of late frost, that kind of thing. And be aware of heavy rain, if it happens, dryness, wetness, that kind of stuff. Be a weatherman. Be, that's what you've got to be, haven't you, yeah, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And as for sowing outdoors, I think where I live, because I'm quite exposed out, out with just fields around me, it's actually far too early. Yeah. It's not warm enough yet to sow outdoors this month. And I suspect that'll be for most of the country and certainly up further north. But you think you might be out there towards the end? Yes, I will. Well, London is um, it's quite warm, actually. It's interesting because I, I put some photos out of my balcony on social media of all the daffs and all my Scottish mates went, well, hang on a minute, it's a bit early for that, isn't it? So you kind of get reminded, you know, that things aren't what they are. But I will do, I will, it's, it's all right for me to put in my salad crops, radish, rocket, cut and come again lettuce, Um, salad leaves that kind of stuff but I will put a fleece over it just while it's young and small until it gets established so um, that I want to get ahead of the game because I have an allotment that was overgrown if I get in early and I get the plants up it will help me control the weeds basically it'll give them a head start before that weed starts to really set in so it's a tactic I've used the last few years and it's worked really well but I will fleece it and I don't recommend it if you're in Newcastle or Edinburgh because I'm sure those late frosts are still going to come your way I think that's a very good point. I'm I'm actually of a different school of gardening to you. I tend to delay more. I think I think we get rushed into doing things by the media and and whatever. And I like to actually take my time. So yeah. I often don't sow until May and just wait until 
if I put my hand on the soil, I can tell whether it's... You feel the warmth of it. Yeah, it was, I mean, traditionally gardeners, you know, June the 1st is there, put the tenders out day, so I understand that. You can use tricks and, you, and you're like, now down south, the weather's a lot different. But yeah, patience is certainly a big part. I think not rushing into it is, is, is what it's all about, enjoying the moment. Maybe that's an age thing, Chris. But anyway, we do talk a lot about sowing your own seeds and listeners might wonder why. Why can't I just go to the garden centre and buy them as plugs? Well... I know we often repeat this, but I think it's worth saying again, if you buy plants in, you're often involved in a cycle of pesticides, of imports and compost that's probably full of peat. These are all the things that aren't sustainable in your growing area or just for the planet in general. And one of the most sustainable things you can do is to grow your own from some sort of propagation. Either you've taken cuttings or you've sown your own seeds. Wouldn't you agree, Chris? Yes, certainly. I mean, I'm an allotment site with a big Sopritic population and they're all exchanging their runner beans and broad beans and stuff from last year. So you've got that. It's nothing more environmentally friendly than Swede seed swapping on an allotment site. So if you can do that or speak to people, you know, gardeners, we've said it a hundred times, generous people. They like to swap stuff. They like to swap seed. It's a lot of camaraderie involved in it. And you are doing your organic bit by doing that. That's for sure. And if you feel nervous about sowing, if you haven't done it a lot of it, or if this is your first time, listen to last month's podcast because Chris, you gave a very helpful, what do you call it, tutorial, I think is the word, (laughs) on how to sow seeds. And there's a lot on the Garden Organic website as well about how to sow your seeds successfully. I think, you know, don't be too fearful of it. If, if, you know, some things work and some things don't, you'll get a feel for it. You'll get better at it. It's just great fun. You treat it as great fun because it's one of life's pleasures. I've actually also, um, you know, I'm a big hardy annual grower. I love those kind of free and easy hardy annuals that sort of make their way into spaces like English, like the Calendula, Helianthus, uh, Nasturtiums, these kind of plants. Well, I saved a huge bag of them from my allotment last year. And this is a great way to reduce, you know, carbon footprint, et cetera, and be sustainable. I saved a big bag of them. Some, not all of them will come true because they're varieties. So they'll revert. And when I say revert, I mean, they'll go back to the original genetic sort of strength in the plant. So the flowers might be a little bit different. But I'll save that big bag. I'll do the verge out the front by the car park. And I'll do my allotment again. So that means I've saved money. I've got all these plants to grow. It's really good fun. That sounds great, Chris. Do you remember back in January and February, we solemnly said, if you haven't got anything else to do, go into your greenhouse, tidy it out, wash down the pots, <laughs> do all of that. Do you remember that? Yes. Well, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. Best intention, Sarah, and all that. <laughs> I know, I know. But I have just done it this past weekend because the sun was shining and the birds were singing. And I did go out into my little tiny greenhouse and I had the nicest hour doing a yeah. bit of domesticity, cleaning and getting everything sorted, throwing out all the old compost and bringing in some fresh stuff. All of that went on. So what I think I'm saying is it's a good thing to do. And it's certainly not too late if you do it now. No, the growing season is ahead of us. And I think also that it, it gets you in the right frame of mind doing doing having an hour like that. Exactly. I find I'll go down to my polytunnel and just potter around. I love pottering, you know, that's I just love that. It's one of the great pleasures of gardening. But it just gets you in that, well, yeah, you, it, it gets you your adrenaline going, your excitement going, I think. That's very as well as doing important work. It's important work too. Well, I tell you what I also noticed, and that's that aphids are about. I've taken a number of cuttings from plants last year, and so I've got these little tiny three-inch plants that are just showing their first new bud leaves, and there's aphids in there. And I think, again, what I want to say is don't panic. 
don't for goodness sake reach for the bug spray. Aphids, yes, they like that soft plant tissue and they want to get hold of the sap, but don't panic, it won't kill the plant. Wait, and soon predators will come along. And by that, I mean aphid-eating insects like ladybirds or lacewings. Yeah. Or even do what I did, which was put them outside the greenhouse. And I know there's a family of blue tits up in the oak yeah. tree beside me. They're more than ready to come down and feed on them. So don't panic about aphids. And I'm sure we'll reference these over the next couple of months, Chris, because aphids are a fact of life in the garden. Just have that checks and balance within nature. Yeah, don't take out what's an important part of the food chain, really. Those little fledgling blue tits that'll be appearing, they're going to need feeding, ferociously need feeding. So why not get that? You know, there's a food source there, let it let it do its own thing. I think you put it right now. I think if I talk to people who are not, you know, involved in gardening all the time, like the idea of grand plants, but have busy lives, you know, that to them would set panic in. Oh, I've got a pest. I mean, you know, I need to do something about this. It's quite important to stress that it's not the end of the world. It's part of the process. There's natural ways of dealing with it. Don't panic is a good good way to look at it. And there is actually quite a simple way of dealing with it, and that's just washing it off with a jet of water. Yeah, rub it off with your fingers, yeah, and get get some natural balance going. So, Chris, what else is on your, your list this month? Well, I will be doing my tenders. I know it's probably a little bit early for you, but I will be, towards the end of April, I will do my run at beans. I will do my courgette. Um, those I'll do aubergine. I tend to do them quite late. I know people do them earlier, but they all start off in my my office. Will become engulfing plants. Um, so this room that I'm sitting in, will I've got about twenty propagators. They'll fill up, and then so it'll all become a little nursery really, and they'll get into the window, and then I'll start them in here. I'll prick them out in here, then they'll all get moved down to the poly tunnel sort of early May, and I'll start hardening them off. So I'm on that kind of drive, really. It's important to, to remember, leave it to end of April and, and grow them on first for a few reasons. And um, they're less, if I get them in at six leaves stays, they're less prone to slugs and snails, that kind of stuff when I plant them out. Um, because I can give them a good, strong start. But also don't go too early is the main one. I remember last year, my neighbours went a bit early with a run of beans and they got a cold wind on them, which tends to do the damage. That was still sort of early May, mid-May. So you need to be judging it, but I, I am going to get going, yeah. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> and Chris, it's not too late to do some pruning either, is it? No, it's not. And I think there's deciduous shrubs and small trees. This is the time I like to prune them because as they're breaking, it becomes very apparent where the dead wood is. So you can actually see what you're doing and you can thin them out. All plants need air like we do. So if you can get it, the crowns and the, pl- the shrubs nice and open, it means they'll breathe, they'll function better. So now's the time to look at your deciduous shrubs and prune out any dead material you see. I think also to cut back to what looks like a strong bud. Quite yes. a few plants have a long stem with a lot of rather small buds on the end of it. And if you cut back to a strong outward facing bud, you'll probably have a much healthier growth and more and a stronger flower as a result. You will do any spindly growth I would personally remove. Any crossing or rubbing wood I'd get rid of as well. Just think of the crown as being open. You you may mention something very important there about outward facing, but that keeps the crown nice and open and airy, and that's what you're looking for. And ponds. Uh, Ponds are looking a bit sorry for themselves at the moment, aren't they? (laughs) They always do look a bit miserable after the winter, I think. You know, you've kind of got the, if any marginals, there'll be a lot of dead in them that'll need cutting back now. I like to leave the dead foliage through the winter because it provides habitat and it protects the roots. Um, But now be the time to tidy up those. One word of warning about this is put them on the side of the pond, any dead leaves, and leave them for a couple of hours. So any wildlife that's in there can crawl back in. Oxygenators are very important, things like Elodia, which is like a floating aquatic. Go to a garden centre um, or even a, a shop that sells fish 
They'll know what aquatic oxygenators are, which keeps the algae awake, absorbs nitrogen and stops all the algae forming in the water. Okay, that's great, Chris. Well, I can see you've got a busy month ahead of you. I have. I'm very excited. I really am. It's 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 a very uplifting time of year. And like and we said before, I think because we've, we've been in lockdown and had such a strange year, it, it might mean a little bit even more this year. Yeah, let's get out and relish it. Yes. Thanks, Chris. Have a lovely Watch day. Cheers, Sarah. Bye. Now's the time to meet our guest this month. Chris spent time with Dr Ian Bedford, who up until recently was head of entomology at the John Innes Research Centre. That's head of bugs to you and me. What I loved about this chat is Ian's evident enthusiasm for his subject. It's eye-opening. Well, another treat for me on the Garden Organic Podcast today, because I'm with, and I've known for a while now, we have Mr Ian Bedford, who's former head of entomology from John Innes Centre, who's now very busy. I think you're probably busier now than you are ever, aren't you? I am. <laughs> it's been quite surprising, really. And I've uh, oh, been retired for a year now, just over a year. And you always hear people saying, once you retire, there's never enough time to do anything. And I can guarantee it's true. No, you're very, you're very uh, prominent on the circuit doing garden clubs and talks. I mean, you're in demand, aren't you? And you do a lot of consultancy. Yeah, well, yeah, whilst I was at um, John and this, I, you know, I ran the, the entomology department, but we had lots of requests from companies to use our knowledge and experience with insects to test products. And of course, that didn't go down too well with being a government funded big boys. Yeah. big boys. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a charity there. It's a, yeah, plant science research. So you know, now that I've come to retirement, I have a very strong policy that I only work with companies that are producing products that I believe are good for the environment and things which offer an alternative to the toxic chemicals that have been you know, commonly used for so many years before and are probably you know, a major component of why we've lost so many insect species over the years. I mean, you think they estimate that probably half of the insect numbers around the world have been lost since the 1970s. It's incredible, I and mean, it's frightening, in fact. And, and you think that is, do you think that's down to our chemical use? What, what would you put that down to? You... Well, I think it's a combination of things. And I, I rode a motorbike for many years, and yeah, you'd have to stop <laughs> every so <laughs> often to clean the visor. You, you keep a damp rag you know, under the saddle. But I think you know, chemicals have definitely played a role in this. I mean, we've been using, since the sort of late 80s, the neonicotinoid pesticides, which are very long-lasting, and they get into the soil, they, use this, they have been used as seed treatments for major crops such as wheat, or seed rape, sugar beet. And the active ingredients stay in the soil. They move through the, the water, they go to the margins, they get taken up by the wildflowers. And because such a large quantity has been used on the seeds, because the idea is that as the seeds germinate, the roots come out and they start to pick up the chemical that's encasing them. And then that goes into the plant and basically creates the plant a toxic defense against the, the insects which, which would have eaten it. So they have to put enough chemical on that seed to make sure that happens. And estimates are it's probably around 15% of the chemical that's on the seed gets taken up by the plant. The rest stays in the ground, moves out to the margins, and you end up with contamination of all the wildflowers around the crops. So that's been the big, big problem with this. And these products have been banned the past four years now but they're still in the soil. They last many, many years. So it's the longevity of the chemicals is, it, is a real major issue. Because yeah. we're always told with glyphosate, once it hits the ground, it's neutralised. Is that a myth? No, no that those types of chemicals do have, you know, break down very quickly. And so does right. pyrethrum right. and pyrethroids. And, and people don't know what they buy. They buy bug killer. They take it off the shelf in the garden centre. They don't look at the little small writing on the back to see it says pyrethrum or acetamaprid or thioclopid. Or and they don't know that that is a long 
well, in the, in the case of the neonicotinoids, a long-lasting insecticide, or um, with the pyrethrum, but it's a broad-spectrum killer. So you spray it on your rose aphids, you kill ladybirds, you kill ladybird uh, larvae, you kill the lace wings, you know, the parasitic wasps, everything else that's there building up to try and control the aphids naturally. So I'm a great believer that, you know, we have to try and find alternatives to these broad spectrum chemicals. They have a use in protected growing, but not in the wider outside garden environment. I don't want to use any kind of spray in my, my garden, especially on my allotment, because I consume, I eat that, that exactly. produce. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it's, it's understanding insects, when they're going to be active, when they're not. Understanding life cycles, I suppose. Is that, is that a good part of maybe able to predict and, and, and get healthier crops? Absolutely. It's an understanding that um, healthy ecosystems depend on healthy food chains. And that means you start off, you know, at the base with your plants. I mean, they're the things which get eaten, first of all, by you know, the first base of insects. But they're then controlled by the, the next layers. So unless you actually allow that to happen, and you're going to have to put up with a little bit of damage to begin with, you're not going to end up with a healthy environment which is managed naturally. You have to allow time for the predators and parasites to build up because they don't breed at the same rate as the initial bugs that infest the plants. And if you look at a typical year, and we go back to the roses again, the first things you see on the roses are those aphids. But they're there as a major food source for the blue tits. But while the blue tits are taking lots of those, you're also getting the ladybirds waking up, laying their eggs on the, on the plants so their eggs can hatch into the little grubs that will start eating the aphids. You'll get the parasitic wasps emerging. You'll have the hoverflies laying their eggs. So eventually you end up with a whole community which is balanced by the good bugs who feed on the bad bugs. And theoretically, you should be able to just let your garden get on with it. I mean, there's little things you can do which are safe for everything. Like, you know, if you haven't got the blue tits there to, <laughs> to take, you know, the majority of the aphids, and that's simply to use a fine spray of water. You know, the adapters that you can have on the hoses. Twist them around to the flat fan setting and just zip that water up and down your rose. It won't damage the plants, but it'll knock the aphids for six. Two or three times a week, you know, if you go out to water the garden, just knock the aphids off, keep their numbers lower, and then you let the beneficial insects build up. It's very, very simple, but it does involve understanding not only the life cycles of the pests and the beneficials, but how they work together. And patience and observation, on my allotment, I tend to put in plants that are going to encourage predators, like fennel for hoverfly, that kind of thing. How yeah. about I, what I tend to do is I plant them in strips along the sides of my allotment, so you've got it covers the whole length. Is that a good idea? What are ways we can encourage predators in to keep control of things like aphids? Well, well, certainly, because I, I think, you know, the, the adults of things like, you know, the parasitic wasps and, you know, the hoverflies and lacewings, they will feed on nectar. So you need something that's, you know, high levels of nectar to, to, to draw them in initially. Then they will find out that there's the good food source there for their grubs, their larvae, so they'll lay their eggs on them. But a lot of people will be growing these things as companion plantings for, for other reasons, because, you know, it's, there's plenty of literature out there showing that, you know, you, perhaps you, you plant, um, I don't know, there's one that I was thinking, that rosemary is something that's supposedly going to deter carrot root fly. Well, it might do, but the rosemary then attracts something <laughs> like um, the rosemary leaf beetles, <laughs> which will then go feeding your lavenders. So it's a case of, you know, you've got, you've got to put together a, a, a really sort of nice package, but to look at every component of it and make sure that you're not actually creating more problems by doing this than by leaving it alone. <laughs> So in a way, I suppose, companion plant, it's one thing, you couldn't describe it as scientific, really, could you? It's, not, it's something that gardeners have done for a long time. Yes. But actually planting um, to encourage predators, that's a bit more accurate in a way. Yes. Well, we know that, you know, that 
by by planting um, plants which are very colourful, things which have high levels of nectar, you'll not only get those types of beneficial bugs that we just mentioned, but you'll also bring in the pollinators. So you'll have the bumblebees and the solitary bees and that, which will then help to pollinate the crops that you're growing as well. Yeah, it's, it's just putting a nice little package together. And there's no harm at all in, in following some of the suggestions that um, are made through the companion planting literature. But there's some other things as well, which I actually looked at on a science level. Um, you probably heard about planting marigolds uh-huh, to yes. repel whitefly. Well, it does have an effect on whitefly, but it doesn't repel them. <laughs> what it does, the actual colours of, of those marigolds, the bright oranges and yellows, attract the adult whitefly. And if you look under the, under the petals, you'll find lots of these whitefly just sitting there. And they even lay their eggs on the petals. So it actually keeps them off you're your encouraging tomatoes. Them, you're encouraging them in a way. Well, possibly. But then again, <laughs> they'll, they'll land on those colourful things. They'll be actually then landing on the tomatoes to lay their eggs because they prefer the colours. Right. The well, I'm a big balcony gardener. I'm up here on the third floor. I've oh, lovely seen bar. your lovely balcony. Yes, yeah. I do love my balcony. <laughs> Can people get a lot of wildlife onto their balconies? It's a lot of insect life. Is it quite easy to do? Well, yes. If you, you plant the right plants, you will attract them because, uh, in fact, some of these sort of urban areas are, are actually attracting a lot more of the pollinators than some of the more rural areas where there's you know, plants which are being contaminated with the pesticides. And I mean, going back to this thing about the, the insects on the windscreens as well, something that I've always thought about is that where the councils plant all these plants for pollinators down the sides of busy roads and even in the middle, you imagine how much physical control is going on with those cars. It's a bit like fly swats all the time bashing yeah, these yeah. insects. So, you know, you have a, the chances of a bee traveling from the middle to the side and not getting hit by a car is pretty slim in many cases. So over the years, I, I think that results in phenomenal numbers of, of insects being killed. Yeah, I- I wonder whether do we set up corridors for these for, for, for both insects and wildlife and to make sure because traffic is a big issue isn't it it is and in fact that's something that's happening now we've got these things called bee lines mm. you may have heard of where yeah. uh, people are actually setting up these these corridors for the bees to move from one place to another and there's one that i was uh, looking at online they've um, set up this bee line right across wales fantastic you know and it just means so many people can get involved as well with this and i've always said that everybody who has a garden has a part of that big jigsaw puzzle you know if you know what is good for these beneficial bugs we can all contribute we can all be part of that big jigsaw puzzle to try and improve the environment so in a way um organizations like garden organic the work you do joining this mm-hmm. all these but we everything needs pr doesn't it? everything needs publicity so we need yeah. to be out sort of fight in that corner and it, it, I just wonder I don't want to shock people but how, how badly have insect levels declined in recent years yeah well uh, sort of mentioned earlier that you know, since the 70s they reckon that about half the uh, insect numbers around the world have been lost and it's continuing to decline and there's about 400,000 species that are heading towards extinction at the moment that are known about you look at the, the, the tropical rainforest they reckon that you know we're, we're losing um, species that have never had a chance to even be discovered and some of these things hold such amazing vital pieces of um, uh, uh, things which actually help the human race. I mean, even down to things like spiders. I mean, the work that's being done now on, on, on spiders' webs to find that the webbing is, um, is much stronger than, than steel. Mm. And that, uh, you know, you can actually put spiders' webs into a, a weave and, uh, and stop a small bullet from going through. It's, it's phenomenal stuff. Yeah, the, the sadness, uh, the sad part of actually losing these species before they're discovered is that there could be so many wonderful cures and things to, to problems that we actually currently have and we'll never get to know about it. 
it's kind of like we're burning down a natural laboratory, isn't it? That, you know, that is that kind of um, yeah, good way to analyse it. And I suppose that, I mean, listening to that, to me, that's a brilliant rallying call for everyone out there to, to be more concerned about this. Um, I know Garden Organic would, would embrace that and hopefully a lot more people. We need the big boys like the RHS and National Trust as mm. well to get to get into it. But if you were just a, you know, a, 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 just a gardener, and all, you know, but we're obviously organic gardeners, but if you were a gardener with a small back garden, there are a few things. What would you be your top tips to, to encourage insects in? Obviously, flowers is an obvious one, but are there others? Well, I mean, the flowers are obvious, but we had to be a little bit careful there as well, because you may have seen the publication that came out of Sussex University in 2017 by um, Professor Dave Galston yes. and his team. You know, I think it was 79% of the plants that he was he bought from um, retailers contained the neonicotinoid pesticides. And these were things which had the RHS logo as perfect for pollinators on them. So people were going into shops, into the retailers, buying these, taking them home and not realising that for probably three or four years for the sort of perennial plants, that, that, that three or four years down the line, they still have those toxic chemicals in them. And the you know, butterflies and bees that are being attracted to the flowers would be getting a dose of the chemicals. And many people that I've spoken to about this are, are really angry, you know, that they've gone out and spent their money on, on plants for particularly for the pollinators in the garden, to find that they've actually been contaminated. So that would be a great starting point to try and stop this use of them. But it's all about traceability. When I go to a garden centre, I can ask and say, can you guarantee these plants haven't been treated with systemics? And most of them go out of their way to find out. You know, there's a a large garden centre down the road. And while I was there, the guy phoned up his suppliers and could tell me which plants had been treated and which hadn't. But wouldn't it be great if these garden centres actually labelled? So is that the answer, do you think? Just clearer messaging about source, basically. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? About where stuff comes from and how it's being produced, uh, whether it's local, that kind of thing. Making that messaging far clearer is, is a big step forward. Absolutely. And I think the garden centres that did this and identified which plants had been treated not would be quite surprised at how the sales changed because people would go to those areas to buy the plants which hadn't got the chemicals in preference. So in a way, it's an opportunity for horticulture, isn't it? It's an opportunity because we could be um, leading from the front on these things. We could open up new horizons, couldn't we, in how we're perceived if, if we get this right, especially the retail end of things. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and it's not just with the plants. It's with, you know, the products that you could use as alternatives to these broad-spectrum chemicals. There's plenty out there now. I mean, before we got into this lockdown situation, I was visiting garden centres and, and giving them this idea that they should set up these green zones where people could come in and not have to try and search through the back label of a product to find out what the active ingredient was and then to try and identify whether that active ingredient was toxic to beneficial insects. But to purely go in, walk to an aisle which said safe products, the green zone, take anything off the shelves there and know that it wasn't going to harm the bugs in their garden that they didn't want to harm. Many, well, all, all the garden centres, to be honest, that I spoke to about this were very, very keen to do so. And in the case of the, the slug control methods, you know, um, why would people really want to use slug pellets which kill all the species of slugs when out of the 42 species we have in the, the UK, only six or seven are a problem. They, they'll be killing all, all the good slugs as well. But if they have a choice to actually use an effective deterrent, and to protect the plants by putting something around them, which, you know, offered a a fairly good level of control, but it didn't kill the slugs. That's a far better thing to do, because it it then leaves the slugs there for the wildlife that feed on slugs as well, you know, and and we start to see an increase in the number of thrushes that we get in our gardens, and, you know, even down to slow worms, which feed on the little grey Duroceros slugs. You make a really interesting point there, that not all slugs are bad, because I just don't think people know that. They slug got to destroy it, end of story. And, and, uh, and I see pellets being used on, on, uh, out and about. 
it's not just they put a few pellets they absolutely smother it with pellets as yeah. well so what kind of effect is that happening having on the soil oh exactly I, but you know those are chemicals which are going to be taken down into the soil the metaldehyde in particular is incredibly toxic to mammals and birds and I was shown oh, some agonizing, horrible pictures of, of hedgehogs that had died through eating um, slugs that are that fed on um, metaldehyde pellets, and they're all twisted where they died in agony. And I think if people saw that, they would never use those pellets in their garden again. I don't think there's any reason, as, as you've said, for, for anybody to use chemicals in a, in a garden environment. But you're saying now out in the, in the consumer market, there are, you're working, there are products we can use to control those things that are going to damage the environment. Yeah. We've got um, some products which are soap-based on the market. One in particular, you know, we, we, we looked at just to see how it actually worked. And insects have a waxy coating on them. And that waxy coating actually stops them from drowning when it rains or from the condensation. When it just In the same way, wax paper, you put water on it, it just runs straight off. And, and brassica leaves as well. If you, so if you spray them with a soap-based product, it overcomes that. And in fact, it makes that waxy coat sticky. And it can either allow the water to go in to the spiracles and then the, the insect could drown or it actually washes them off the surface. And in fact, if you go to some of the biocontrol producing companies, that's how they remove the parasitized whitefly scales from leaves. They wash them off with, with a detergent. It detaches them from the leaves. So this is basically how these products work. And the more robust insects, which are the, would be the beneficials, the ladybirds, you know, and the, the bees and, and, and things like that, they're not affected by this. So they can pull away, you know, from from, from these these soap-based sprays. So, but it's a darn sight more, you know, safer for the environment than a pyrethrum. Uh-huh. Yeah, the demand's growing, isn't it? People are more and more aware of the fact that they don't want to carry on polluting their planet as much as they have been in the past. So the ignorance is lifting, but uh, obviously retail and all of us as individuals need to make sort of that mm. effort, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and. Uh, and also the other thing is that you know, people think if you're going to protect the wildlife, you end up with a real sort of messy garden that has to basically look like, you know, some sort of the wilderness. And, and that certainly isn't the case. And I mean, the, with you know, my family here and particularly my wife, who, who doesn't like bugs very much and certainly... <laughs> yeah, she married the right man then, you know? <laughs> oh, God, yeah. <laughs> but, but, um, but no, but she, she needs a nice, tidy garden. And, and she sort of said, oh, wouldn't it be better just have a, a, a lawn with pretty flowers all around the outside or something? Well, no, <laughs> we definitely not have that. But I do have a t- what I call a tidy garden, but all the borders are set up so that um, it's good for wildlife. I plant the plants which I know will attract them give shelter and, and, and protection as well as the food for, 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 for a vast range of, of the wildlife. And I keep an eye open for what visits the garden as well. And, you know, I, I noticed that I was getting a lot of uh, brimstone butterflies, for example, coming in to feed on, on the buddleias and, and the, uh, the verbenas and that. And I know that the only host plant that their larvae feed on is buckthorn. So I bought some bare root buckthorns mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, put them all around the edge of the garden. And this year, loads of brimstone caterpillars. Yeah. And mixing the plant in, like, make, like you said, in Buckthorn, but having, having, you know, it doesn't have to be all too much of the same thing, does it? I mean, my balcony, I think one of the reasons it's successful is I try to mix the, the cropping up as much as possible, as edibles, as herbs, as roses. So you just mix things together. Is that a good, is that a good idea? Absolutely. You know, some things won't work and some things will. You know, I had some success last year, but I, I, I've always tried messing about with companion planting and it's, it's never really worked. But I actually grew some rhubarb and then put the runner beans up to grow through the rhubarb. And I thought, well, the leaves are going to protect the young runner beans from the frost, so I can plant them in earlier. Uh-huh. And sure enough, the runner beans came through. And when they got up and started cutting the light out, 
the rhubarb produced longer stems and sweeter stems and it was fantastic wow. so re- really good crop of rhubarb and a really good crop <laughs> of rhubarb. i'm going to try that mate i'm going to try that that's a good tip that is and yeah I, I have to ask as well i mean you're like me as a plantsman it's very hard to pin certain things down when it comes to favorites but what do you enjoy most seeing you mentioned the butterflies there what do you enjoy most seeing in your garden what gives you the biggest buzz uh, well, it, it, it definitely is the butterflies. I mean, that's how I started off my, my love of entomology. I was uh, born in Brighton. I used to spend my youth running around the, uh, the South Downs. <laughs> Those were amazing well, days. I'm a, Bright- I'm a Brighton lad, mate, so I know it well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, brilliant. But, yeah. <laughs> so they're particularly sensitive to, uh, to, to climatical changes and yeah. chemical changes. So they're, they're the first to feel it, aren't they, in many ways? They are. They, they, in fact, they're used as an indicator as to the health of ecosystems because where the butterfly populations are declining, there's something not quite right. And, and they've been hit quite badly with these neonicotinoid pesticides. And there's a direct correlation between butterfly decline rates and where these chemicals have been used extensively. And East Anglia, unfortunately, is a place where butterfly decline is pretty serious. Up in Scotland, where they don't use those chemicals so much, it's it's, it's stable. Everything's so, happening for a reason, eh? <laughs> it? Well, you're very, is. Pa- yeah, isn't it? You're very passionate about it. Well, I know that you're really busy. I know you're a man in demand. But tell us about your speaking circuit. Because I know you do a lot of gardening clubs, this kind of thing. There might be people listening to this who, who would love to book you. So you know, give us a bit of info on, on, on yeah. that. Yeah. Well, it, the talk sort of started about uh, four or five years ago. I was asked, you know, by some local clubs to go and give a talk, and thoroughly enjoyed it. But I also do a fair bit on on, on radios now. I'm I'm, I'm the, the the local bug man for, for Radio Norfolk, and uh, <laughs> but yeah, as as you can probably tell, I really am passionate about talking to like-minded people and, yeah. and enthusing people to try and get their gardens as environmentally friendly as possible and to, to yeah, help. No, mate, I, I love it. I like a chat to you for a week, mate. It's uh, <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah, I, like it. I mean, I remember when we first met. We were, well, obviously, you know I'm a very passionate gardener and entomologist. Yeah, it's just great coming across people who are just you know so, so enthused about what they're doing. I'm, I'm, on behalf of Garden Organic, I'd like to say a big, big thank you for taking time out today for and chatting to me. And uh, no, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> What an inspiring talk. If you want to hear more from Ian, and there's so much more he can talk about where insects are concerned, then look out for our Unpruned episode, which is released later this month. There you'll get the full interview with Chris. So now it's time to open the podcast post bag. I'm joined by Chris, Hannah and Anton to answer your gardening queries. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hi. Hannah, what's our first question today? So we're starting with a question about potting compost. Someone's contacted us and said that they'd like to make their own potting compost instead of buying it in bags in the garden centre. Can they do this? Anton? Yeah, it is certainly possible to make your own. First of all, you need to know what the properties of an ideal compost is for growing your plants in. Um, So ideally, you want some sort of bulking agent in there so that it holds water also drains as well so that it just holds on to the right amount of water. You want something that doesn't slump in the trays so that it retains some sort of air pockets in there so that the roots can breathe. You want some sort of nutrients in there for for the plants and you want something that supports the plants as well. So it needs all those things. It's 
different properties for different stages of the of the plant. That sounds quite complex, Anton. <laughs> you never you never knew so much was going in a bag, did you? I think ideally in a perfect gardening world, you would have different sorts of compost, potting compost for different stages of the plant. So for instance, when you're sowing seeds, seeds contain their own nutrients. So they will probably germinate quite successfully in a very low nutrient material, but they do need that good drainage that you mentioned. So to make your own seed sowing compost, I recommend mixing half and half maybe of ordinary garden soil and if you have it, some leaf mold. Or if your soil is very heavy, maybe mix in a little bit of, of sand. So you've got that good drainage. But the most important thing is to sieve it so you haven't got big lumps, which will create massive air pockets that will prevent little tiny roots getting contact with the soil. Now, when you pot on those seeds, when they get a little bit bigger and they become seedlings and young plants, they still need the excellent drainage, but they need a bit more nutrients for their roots to take up. So I would slightly adjust that mix to add in some sieved garden compost, some rich homemade compost, because that'll provide the nutrients for the growing seedling plant. Now, it sounds very precise. It's not. You can have fun playing around with different mixes. You'll get a feel of what feels good in your hands and following what Anton said about holding moisture, you know, keeping a bit of air. It doesn't slump. Just play around with it a bit, I think. Wouldn't you agree, Chris? Yeah, certainly. I think it, the important thing is, is you, you give some consideration to it. I think that I, um, you know, to go down to a, a, a DIY store and get three bags for a tenner and think that's going to do all everything for you is, is going to uh, it's going to cause you problems. I'm a big believer in making sure sea compost is, is the best it can be. I think that starting point is really important. I, I think if you can make your own, that's brilliant. If you're busy and that and time doesn't allow or that's too complex for you, Really, a 20 quid bag of decent peat-free organic compost for seed sowing is quite a good investment. So this all sounds quite technical. If you're, um, you've only just started and you perhaps took up gardening this time last year and you've got a bag of something at the bottom of the shed, is the advice that, you know, unless it's exactly what you need, it's maybe not worth risking? Or would you still say something's better than nothing and, and give it a go? I would say it's worth giving it a go, really. Um, I, I would say that getting your seed compost mix is perhaps the most tricky one. But if you haven't got exact seed compost, things will still germinate in other types of compost. If you've just got multi-purpose compost, the germination might not be quite so good. But if you end up with slightly less plants, it's better than no plants at all. One of the things I would advise is that sometimes multi-purpose compost has few lumps in it and you could just sieve the compost or even just pick some of the lumps out and that will give the seeds a better start in life. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. And I know this is one of the things that we go into in quite a lot of detail on the Garden Organic website. So for anyone who is keen on making their own, good place to have a look there for, for the different mixes and the different quantities. And Hannah, I wouldn't dismiss the idea of if you've got a bed that's full of soil, just ordinary garden soil, dig a bit out, sieve it. You've got in the very nice fine sort of tilth, it's called then. Just try sowing into it. I mean, I go the extra mile and I, I'm afraid I, I bake mine. And the reason of I do this... <laughs> 
the reason I do it is that there is every chance that you've got some weed seeds in that garden soil and those weed seeds will come up with your own seeds that you've sown and you'll find it difficult maybe to distinguish between the two. So if you put some in a tin tray and bung it in a hot oven for 20 minutes, you are pretty much sterilizing that soil and you're getting a very dry sort of sterile loam in which to sow your seeds. And then you know when the seeds germinate, that those are the seedlings that you want. But I recognise, and perhaps I'm going down a little bit, the purist route. Actually, I found molehills works pretty well. Moles have actually done quite a few bit of the cultivation for you. So I agree, Anton. Not such a bad thing if they're uh, tearing yeah. up your lawn then. Natural rotavate, natural top dressers, aren't they, moles? You think about it. Brilliant. OK, well, let's move on to the second question. Um, and someone's contacted us and asked, is it too early to use biological controls in the greenhouse? And I think probably the place to start here is what biological controls are and what they do. Um, Anton, can you enlighten us? Yeah, so a biological control is a, well, it's a biological organism that will eat your pests for you and control them for you. Most biocontrols actually exist in nature themselves anyway. You're not actually introducing some sort of alien creature into your, into your garden. But what you're doing is what we call augmenting them. You're actually sort of giving them a bit of a boost, increasing their numbers. There's a few examples of things that, that work quite well. The vine weevil control, there's a, there's a nematode called Steinonema krausii, um, which you can water into your pots and that will control them at the grub stage. So you either do it um, early, early in the spring when there's still grubs before they've pupated, or you do it um, in autumn. It doesn't work on the adult vine weevils. There's other ones as well. There's a predatory mite called Phytocelius, which will control red spider mites. That needs slightly warmer conditions, so it might be better in a conservatory. And there's also a predatory wasp called Encarsia formosa, which will control whitefly. It just controls the glasshout whitefly, not the brassica whitefly that you see outside. Again, that needs quite warm conditions as well. I, I'd say my advice is to is really do your homework before you shell out your money because you really do need the right conditions for them to work. So a lot of these things, you can actually buy them online and they will arrive in the post. And they come with very specific instructions, and it is important to follow those instructions. In fact, it's important to do your homework beforehand and have a look and see whether your conditions are right for those controls, because a lot of them need quite sort of specific temperatures to work. And if you haven't got the right conditions, then they might not be effective and you'd be wasting your money. I think it's also a good point to make that though they are perhaps, as you said, Anton, quite complex in how you use them and, and the conditions in which you use them. They are a good organic way of dealing with pests. It will stop you from reaching for those toxic artificial chemicals, which will have off-target effects. Would you agree, Chris? Yeah, it's interesting. In um, you know, even, even as far back as the 90s, uh, th these things came in. And uh, in big tr uh, tropical collections I've worked in in botanic gardens, they've started using, they started using them in the 90s. A lot of the industry is using them now. Basically, for one, is it's not toxic, but also it's financially it's better for our industry to use them. So hopefully that will translate down into the consumer side of things and we get a much more organic approach to our pest and disease. OK, that's really useful. So it's generally they can be a good solution, but you've got to follow the instructions. Yeah, bit of homework. <laughs> Brilliant. You can do that while your soil's cooking in the oven, Sarah. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you, <Hannah>, yes. <laughs> um, so our final question. Um, someone's contacted us and said, why have my seedlings gone all sickly? 
and the soil around them turned green. I've watered them well. Sarah, what's your opinion? Okay, I think the clue there is the watering well and the soil turning green. I think actually you've got the wrong compost there. It's holding too much water and that's causing that sort of algae growth on top of it which harks back to what we were saying about mixing your own compost, getting that drainage right. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, it's definitely bad compost. If, if you get an algae and green on the surface, then it's not drain, it's holding too much water. And ultimately, you can sow seed in it, but most of it will probably damp off, which is a fungus that attacks base of the seedling when it, when it germinates. So you really, you know, again, I will come back to what we said earlier in the fact that I think you need to think about making sure your seed compost is decent, whether you're making your own, or you're purchasing it. Is there anything else that that um, any other kind of common pests or problems that people might be having with their seed sowing this time of year? Well, the other thing that can end up killing off your seedlings, particularly if you end up overwatering them, is the scarred fly. First, you'll see these little flies dancing around on the top of your compost. They tend to sort of fly in quite a sort of jerky flight. They're quite quite small to look at. They might just look unsightly, but once they lay their eggs in your compost the little grubs will eat away at the roots of your plants and they can eat away at the stems as well. And that causes your plants to wilt, but obviously your reaction is then to water them a bit more, which is actually making things worse. So scarred flies can be a problem, particularly if you used old compost and you haven't sealed the bag up properly. They'll then come and lay their eggs in there. My, my experience is that they are worse in larger seeded things which take a while to germinate because that's really attractive to the scarred flies. Sometimes you might find they don't germinate at all and you might blame the seeds or blame yourself. And then when you actually take the seeds out, you find there's a sort of seed there with a mass of maggots eating away at, at the shoots. Not a pleasant sight, really, but at least it explains what's gone wrong. I think also it's worth remembering it's a packet of seeds. It probably costs less than a cup of coffee. So brilliant that you've sown some. Disaster area. So again, it just it it's great. Just keep trying. There's no hurry. Just keep trying because you know the seeds will germinate eventually. Also, if you, if you you can also some seed packets like Caladura or Rocket, you'll get you know considerable amount of seeds in that packet. So try a few and see how that goes. You don't have to gush them all in in one go, do you? I think I agree with Sarah. I think it's important to get good seed compost and get a strong start. If you're going, if, the further up the level, the more gardening you do, the more you want that to be right. But don't let that put you off. Always, you know, always be, be prepared to have a go. That's really brilliant. Thank you ever so much, all of you. Um, we'll see you again next month. Okay. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. Thanks, Anna. Bye. Bye. Okay, so our time is up. Next month, I chat with Francis Tophill, known to many of you from Love Your Garden on TV, but also the author of How to Rewild Your Garden. And if you like our podcasts, be sure to press like and subscribe. Then you won't miss an episode. You can also write us a review. It shouldn't take long and we'd love to hear your thoughts. Don't forget, there's loads of information on the Garden Organic website, www.gardenorganic.org.uk, about all of the topics we discussed today. And while you're at it, why not head over to theorganiccatalogue.com for all your seeds and gardening needs. Bye for now. Our thanks to Kevin McLeod for providing the music. Music.